Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Chad, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited to have you on the show today. And um, I'm excited to talk about this um, idea about teaching kids about using money in a in a smart way and and being you know these these good stewards of the resources that they grew up around and then also you know financial freedom and other topics related to financial management. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, having me on. Excited. Yeah, for sure. So Chad, I always like to start off by. Um, walking the guests through your background. So maybe you could tell me about um, how did you get started in the world of financial management? Is this something, you know, from an early age that that you're interested in? Were you like interested in numbers when you're going through school? Did you like money? Did you like managing money? Um, what, what was your, uh, your path to uh, get you where you are today? I, I wish I could say that I knew from an early age what I was going to do, but I actually didn't. Uh, my dad had a background in tax. He was a CPA for one of the big four firms in Southern California, but then he moved on to like CFO. He was CFO at Denny's and then he was in the egg business and I'd visit him at work and they had a big corporate office, but it was next to a farm and it smelled like a farm. And I just knew that I didn't want to be in that business. That's kind of what I knew growing up. So in college, my, my degree was economics and I did an internship for my cousin who managed a mutual fund with a few billion dollars. And I was kind of his right-hand man. And I got excited about the stock market and I got excited about investing and it was just fascinating to me. And so when I graduated college, I went to the career fair looking at all the different financial firms. And fortunately, I was given a shot by Merrill Lynch in Southern California. So I kind of, I can't say that it was planned out from a young age. I kind of stumbled into it. I did not know much about investing or finance when I started my job at Merrill Lynch, but um, I was there nine years and then left and started Pacific Capital. So it's all I've done. Wealth management for entrepreneurs is pretty much all I've done for 20 years for my career, but I love it. So. And then when you left and you started Pacific Capital, talk about that whole process, you know, because I imagine like leaving a comfortable job and, you know, where you have financial security and you, you go off and you start your own business. I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and, and founders on the show about that. I mean, how was that whole process? It was very scary. I was 32 years old. I had a mortgage and a few kids. And so as I looked to make that leap, I just knew that the big corporate Wall Street firm wasn't my long-term home. It just didn't feel right. It felt like there was a tug of war between what did the big investment bank want 
versus what did my clients need? And I was constantly battling between the tug of war and I had to pick a side. So it was definitely a risk financially. Um, I was one of the, I was in the top 2% of financial advisors in the country out of 17,000 advisors at Merrill Lynch. And I was basically leaving behind a lot of security, a lot of corporate perks. And it was scary. You know, I signed a lease and bought all this equipment and spent a ton of money and, and, uh, I, I basically rejected the big paychecks that the other Wall Street firms were offering at that time. So you can imagine a 32-year-old Morgan Stanley presented me an offer for $3.5 million to, to basically move my business from Merrill Lynch to Morgan Stanley. And it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like I could look my clients square in the eyes and tell them that I made a move that would benefit them. And that's why I was making the move. And so I took the road less traveled and became an independent fiduciary. With no paycheck up front, no bonus, and no corporate backing, and just just the mission of serving families and entrepreneurs and doing the right thing as a fiduciary. And we celebrate our 10-year anniversary in a couple months, and it's greatest business decision I've ever made, obviously. So, No, that's great. Congratulations. It's interesting because recently I've had a few conversations with um, some private equity folks and you know, they, they tell the same story where they were in investment banking. You know, they had a very plush career going, a, a great job at, you know, the corner office, direct reports, the fancy cars, the big paycheck, everything else. And yes. then one day they said, what am I doing? You know, why am I doing these like leverage buyouts for the bank and advising on these M&A transactions when I could be doing this stuff myself? And they just left and just like burned the ships and, you know, went for it. So it's always interesting to me when people make these leaps, because I'm sure a few people are listening today on the show and, and they're sitting here in this position, like, what am I doing in life? Maybe I should make that leap when, you know, it could be very scary. Right. It was a scary decision at the time, but so we're hitting our 10 year. We've grown an average of 17.1% per year. And we're significantly bigger than the business that I left at Merrill Lynch. So I'm very, very pleased that worked out. And it was, uh, I, I like serving entrepreneurs and executives as clients and business leaders because they are in the trenches and I've been in the trenches as well. And so I have a lot that we can relate on, especially the entrepreneurial clients. So, so let's talk about financial freedom. What does that even mean to you? What, what does that term mean? Yeah, it means a lot of things to different people. My definition is really the absence of worry about money. That's why I titled the first book, Stress-Free Money, because I think that financial freedom really means you don't worry about it anymore. You have that freedom to really do what you want to do when you want to do it with whom you want to do it. You know, and that's, that's the ideal that people are striving for. It's not the old retirement where you're 65 years old, you're smoking a cigar on the rocking chair on the porch, and you don't have to do anything, and you're just reading your newspaper. I think people are really not looking towards retirement as much as they're looking for financial freedom. When do my investments pay for my lifestyle so that I'm not dependent on going to a job and getting a paycheck? And frankly, I'd prefer people to plan for financial freedom based on the cash flow that they have set up versus a retirement age. I think a lot of times people make the mistake and they're just looking towards an age and that becomes their benchmark. And it's almost like a waiting game when really, if you plan strategically and you're really smart with your money, you can reach financial freedom at a much quicker pace than if you're just waiting it out till a particular birthday. 
you know, that makes perfect sense. And it's interesting that this concept of financial freedom, because, you know, I've had several conversations lately with people just about the ideology of money. And I think, you know, whether you're getting into a new relationship with a new partner or whether, um, you know, like a romantic relationship or whether you're, you know, talking with a business partner and you're about to start a new venture or whatever it is, I think like getting really clear on the ideology be, uh, of money, like what does money mean to you is really important because I think, you know, some people, they think money is, you know, a form of their identity, which could be very dangerous. Um, some people view money as a means to consume and buy things and make them feel better through things. Some people see money as a, a vehicle to have freedom. And that's, that's like me. It's like, I care less about going and buying the, the newest car, the plane or the boat, whatever. To me, money is really this idea of giving me freedom so I don't have to report to anybody and I could do whatever I want and I could serve whoever I want. And if I want to go, you know, do a humanitarian trip for a year down in South America, I can. Or if I'm in a job where I'm like, I hate this job, um, I could get out because I don't have to rely, you know, on this um, certain cash flow stream. And, and then it, because otherwise it feels like I'm just in bondage. Agreed. Uh, and that's the mindset that a lot, of, a lot of our clients have is they're looking for freedom of time where they they control their own schedule, freedom of money, meaning they can make decisions, they have financial freedom, their passive income exceeds their expenses, freedom of relationships, where they can really choose whom to spend time with, who to do business with, and then freedom of purpose. Like you said, I, I pick things that I care about and I reject things that I don't care about. Those those four freedoms come from uh, my my business coach and mentor, Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach. Not sure if you've heard of him, but yep. a great program for the 10X program and the Game Changer program that I highly recommend to executives and entrepreneurs all over. Sure. No, that's great. So let me let me ask you this, because right now we're in such an interesting time period, really. I mean, when you look at, like when I look back at 2001 with like the dot-com bust, you know, at the time, um, we had a correction, obviously, in the stock market. You know, there there's stocks that the valuations were just kind of cuckoo, especially with tech stocks. But when you look at the other asset classes like real estate or bonds um, or commodities, they were pretty much in check. So at the time, you know, you didn't have like the this massive run up in real estate and bonds were were pretty reasonably um, priced compared to fair value. And then now, now we have this interesting environment because we have all the asset classes that you know are are running out of control i mean to be argued with right there's there's some people that argue against that but um, if you look at valuations in the stock market you know pe ratios and other multiples they point to an overvalued equity market you have bonds um, that are expensive that could be argued that they're overvalued you have you know a 20% increase in real estate over the last call a couple quarters, which is at a historical record. And then you have commodities that are shooting up. So if you're an investor and you're listening to this, and you're saying, look, yeah, I get that, right? I want financial freedom. I want to take this proactive strategy to investing, but what the heck am I supposed to do right now? Because let's face it, there is principal risk out there. I mean, you could put money um, into asset classes and your, your principal's at risk. So what would you say to that? I would say we, we're probably not going to know the right answer until 10 years have gone by. <laughs> that's just that's the honest, true. yeah, that's the honest opinion I have. Uh, it's so difficult to know what will be the right decision in the short run. I can say in the long run, just looking at the economics of where we are today, it seems like inflation is increasing. 
And certainly the, the borrowing and spending of our government has been extremely high. So inflation does not appear to be slowing down anytime soon, which means something I like to tell clients is when they're printing money, we cannot be sitting around saving money. We can't let our money sit idle. It has to be invested for growth. Inflation doesn't necessarily mean that the stock market or real estate markets will have a, a reaction or a correction because of high inflation. Um, we have to be investing for growth though. So clients with three to six months of living expenses in the bank for savings, that's great. Anything above that should be invested towards growth. And it's, it's impossible to know what's going to do well in the three to six months or one year ahead of us. But I can just say that we have to be actively investing for growth in a period like right now, because otherwise our money is just eroding at the bank. And I know a lot of people just have a lot of cash at the bank and they keep waiting for a crash and waiting for a correction. And yet that money's been sitting there through a 10, 20, 30% growth period and they've missed all of that. So more money is lost anticipating corrections than during actual corrections or declines. I think that was uh, John Templeton or Warren Buffett who said that, but it's a true statement. So we see that all the time. People come to us with significant amounts of money sitting at the bank because either they don't have someone they trust to advise them where to go, they don't have a plan, or they're just concerned that as soon as they put their money in, everything's going to crash, come falling down. You know, sure. so it's well, difficult I, to predict. I, I agree. I am, you know, I, I empathize with that. Yeah. And I mean, and you bring up a good point. I mean, nobody could time the market and it's so tough, and especially with inflation. It's so tricky to like measure inflation. And, you know, the Fed keeps talking about this like idea of transitory inflation or this, this temporary inflation where, oh, you know, it's going to go up and then it's going to come back down or, but really, you know, when I look at inflation to your point, it's like you go to your favorite restaurant and you get a, a hamburger for 15 bucks and you go in the next time and it's at $16. I mean, it's not going back down to 15 ever. So, I mean, this well, idea of like this transitory inflation, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. And you're right. Like if you're not careful, you could definitely erode, you know, your principal too by just sitting on cash when when the Fed is, you know, printing a ton of money and there's just a ton of quantitative easing going on. Exactly. I totally agree with that. So let's switch gears here and, and let's talk about um, the younger generation. So we were talking about financial freedom and I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day and, um, you know, she's a millennial and she was saying, Hey, look, you know, like a lot of my friends that I'm talking to, they're starting to reevaluate their life and even their careers. And, you know, maybe, you know, pursuing that career with a, you know, a six figure paycheck is not as appealing as it once was. And really they're looking for jobs that have other attributes such as, you know, work-life balance, whatever that that is, right. Or other benefits or perks or a place where they feel like there's a greater purpose beyond just themselves. So instead of money being a main driver, this is what her observation was in her micro environment. So, you know, what's your take on that? What do you think uh, is happening with the younger generation when it comes to finding fulfilling work and, and how do they view money? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. 
Interesting because they, they definitely are looking for more of a purpose or mission driven cause. I think cause is the buzzword that they're not just looking for necessarily the big fancy name on the business card or the title, but it's more about the cause and the mission behind the business. And also I think a lot of them are more attuned to the flexibility in their work environments and maybe financial considerations isn't the only thing they're looking at. What I find most interesting is that the money blueprints that we carry with us begin at such a young age. Kids as young as four or five, hearing their parents talk about money or even seeing them just swipe the credit card wherever they go and magically it pays for whatever they want at that moment. Uh, This is an Amazon generation. They see you click a button on your phone and the next day there's a box at the doorstep with whatever your mind dreamed up to, uh, to purchase. And so I, I believe it's very important that we focus on that younger generation, especially those in college or um, before they leave the house, you know, under high school age, and really train them to have a healthy and responsible approach towards money. Because whatever we're teaching them in the home about money is going to stick with them for generations. Yeah. And, and I absolutely agree. And, and, and I mean, it is interesting because I remember growing up, you know, you, you carried around dollars, right? Like I had this little pouch thing and I had all my coins and, you know, a few dollar bills in there. And, you know, you go to the store and you dump all your coins out on the counter and you're, you know, you're, you're counting it up to try to buy a Lego set or something versus now, you know, I, I don't even know if my kids truly understand what I'm doing. I go to the store, they say, Hey, I want this. You pull out a piece of plastic, you swipe it and they get to walk out of the store, but you know, not understanding or not seeing something tangible necessarily can probably be challenging when it comes to teaching kids just the the value of money and and like teaching them about it as a you know a resource right there's there's a reason businesses love using other means besides dollars and coins for payment that's why casinos use chips or uh, cruise lines they use wristbands or membership cards like a video game you know like a Dave and Buster's use a card i mean it's because inevitably we don't feel that we don't feel that pain of spending. So we don't feel that loss. Swiping a card or tapping something just doesn't, it's not very real to us. So we're likely to spend much more when we're not using cash. So I think, like you said, it's important to teach the next generation about the value of a dollar and how to appreciate money and how to approach it rather than just seeing that consumerism and that plastic spending that they don't really uh, you know, one story I'd share in the book is uh, we're leaving Disneyland with my five kids and my wife, and it's been a long day. We spent plenty of money at Disneyland. And on the way out, of course, there's the guy who's got 25 Mickey Mouse balloons, and I think they're each $12. And my younger two kids are like, Dad, can we have a Mickey Mouse balloon? And we're leaving the park. It's already probably 10 o'clock at night, headed to the tram to go back to the parking lot. And the last thing we need is a a hundred dollars worth of balloons on the way out. So I'm like, no, we've already spent, we've already spent enough money today with the food and the other souvenirs and things like that. And he said, just, just go over to that machine that has all the money and get some, you know, in his mind, the ATM machine would solve all of our problems because we'd never explained it to him. And uh, that was many years ago, but it was kind of a wake up call. Got to teach these kids where money comes from. Absolutely. And that's probably the motivation behind your newest book that's going to be coming out soon. So let's talk about that smart, not spoiled. Yeah. So two thirds of parents in America believe their children are entitled or spoiled. And while, while part of that is true, these kids expect more and they have more than we ever dreamed of as kids. 
I'd say the flip side is it, it's not really their fault. Uh, the schools are not teaching personal finance. It's not taught in the schools and in most homes, it's not taught. So we can't really blame them for not understanding the value or appreciating the value of a dollar if no one's teaching them. So the purpose of this book, Smart Not Spoiled, is really to focus on seven money skills that kids must master before leaving the nest. And I share a lot of personal examples from my wife and I raising our kids and from friends and clients who've had great ideas and experiences just discussing money with their kids. And that's really the point of the book. So share a few insights from the book. Um, give us a little preview of, of, of what we're looking at here. Yeah. In one chapter, when I'm talking about earning money, I share the reasons that my wife and I have never paid an allowance to our kids. And I talk about this, the psychology of an allowance versus teaching them that they've got to do specific work and it's up to them how much they earn. So my wife and I have a menu of earnings opportunities. It's not an allowance. It's not a chore chart. Here is a list of opportunities for them to earn money. And each, each opportunity task on the sheet has points awarded for each task. So the harder the task, the more points it is. And our kids get to choose based on their age, really what's appropriate, but they get to choose how much work they put in each day. And they write their score at the end of the day and they keep track of it. And on Saturday, they turn in their scoreboard and they get paid based on the work they did. So if they want to have a lazy week, a kickback week, that's fine. You know, the next time their kids, their friends ask them to go to a birthday party and they've got to buy a present, they're probably not going to have money to buy that present. Or the friends are going to the movies and going to eat afterwards. They're going to need to make sure that they're doing their work throughout the week to have money to pay for that. So we have our kids pay for a lot of the things that they do, a lot of their activities. And I also think this system instead of having just a straight allowance that pays them for existing and breathing and making another week, we take away that entitlement dependency and they really get to see their efforts translate into actual earnings. So one of the chapters is really about teaching your kids to be innovative and take initiative and find ways to earn money to pay for their own things. I think that's very important. Well, and I think that's smart because um, and I'm definitely no expert in parenting, but you know, teaching my kids the value of money is really, really important. And our daughter, um, who's eight years old at the time, you know, we opened up a, a bank account for her, and awesome. it, it's great. You know, the company or the the bank has a product where you know they can have their own bank account. I think they have to be uh, eight years old or something like that. Yes. And um, so she opened up her savings account. She gets her debit card, and she could go online on the the iPad and log into her account. She has her own login. And right. she watches that. So she, she has a little job with the, the neighbors. She'll go over there and watch the neighbor's cat when they go out of town and she gets her cash and puts it in her bank account and, and it's continuing to climb. And it's pretty cool awesome. to see like my eight-year-old daughter, you know, having this bank account and she talks about things and we talk about trade-offs, right? So she says, Hey, I want to buy a horse one day. And right. so we talk about, okay, well, when we go to Target and, you know, you see this doll set, you know, you could buy this, it's, it's $30. But when you buy that, your bank account's going to go down in value. And then she's like, she does the math in her head and she's like, oh, no, I don't want to do that because it's getting me further away from my goal. So I, I think it's it's good for her to like go online to see this money to and to really understand like, hey, you know, if I want to get what I want to get, um, I have to make trade-offs and I have to save and maybe I have to postpone some, you know, fulfillment and, and satisfaction that comes from buying other things, right? 
That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. I think opening a bank account for the kids is very important. Letting them see and make withdrawals and deposits is important. When we've gone to the bank, I make the kids go up there on their own and handle their transactions on their own. Like I step back, I don't go up there with them. And in the beginning, they were super nervous about it. But uh, I think, like you said, I think it's a great experience. And then when you talk about delayed gratification, one of the chapters is on teaching your kids to invest early and often and talk about the value of compound interest and growth at a young age. And I believe that getting them to participate in the investment experience and make little mistakes while they're young will protect them from making much bigger mistakes when they're older. So teaching them about delayed gratification and that investing really is just delayed spending and teaching them how if they put money away and plant seeds today, that they can grow into incredible trees in the future that will provide them fruit and shade and all kinds of benefits as long as they're patient. And so I think that's an opportunity we have that so often we overlook and we talk to the college students or post-college students, but we can get our kids starting to learn about investing at a much younger age. Yeah. And I agree. And I think that delayed gratification, you know, translates into financial freedom because if, if you have money in the bank, look, you have more freedom of where you could go to school, or if you want to take a little sabbatical after high school and, uh, you know, go travel the world, you have that opportunity. Or if you get into a career where you're like, dang, you know, I hate this. Right. Um, so many of my colleagues, you know, they hated their jobs, but they were so reliant on the next paycheck that they never made a move. So they were just like miserable in life. And I'm like, dang, you know, that, that'd be horrible. So I, I think that's really important to, to teach them that. And it, it's really teaching them like the discipline, uh, of, of this delayed gratification and, and what can come of that if, if they plan for the future. And teaching them. Yes. Like you said, based on your friend's experiences, they don't have to be stuck. You can, by being financially smart, you can be unstuck from many obligations and many things that you will want to get out of eventually in your life. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about some of the listeners here. So a lot of the listeners that are on the show are other, um, you know, successful people, entrepreneurs, business executives, management, um, and, and they do very well for themselves. So they're probably listening here and they're thinking, look, I have kids and you know, their kids could be at all different ages of life. As you wrote the book and you, you did your research, what types of mistakes are common you know, what, what types of things do people try to do with good intentions, but they don't truly understand the implications of their, their actions? I'd say that that's a great question. And I'd say the biggest mistake families make and parents make when it comes to money and the next generation is not talking about it enough. They make it a taboo subject. It's not comfortable. Uh, parents argue about money and kids associate negative emotions with, with money and that stays with them. And they think, well, like, money is not a topic that brings joy. It's not a topic that we should talk about if we want a happy family, or they just don't talk about it altogether. So they have a high net worth, they have a high income, and they just, they don't want to talk about anything. And I don't think you need to be so transparent that your kids know your net worth or your income. However, talk to them about money, make it a comfortable family conversation at the kitchen table that you can have discussions about financial decisions you can talk about the cost of everything. I'm totally transparent about the cost of everything we do. I don't hide that. My kids don't know my income or my net worth, but we talk about the costs. We talk about investments. So all the real estate investments my wife and I own, we'll go visit them with the kids and we'll talk about what it means to have properties and tenants and 
the, the pitfalls and the things, the risks and the rewards of being an investor. I think that's important. You know, one of the studies I found shows that parents are more comfortable talking about drugs and sex than money to their children. Sure. I, I think money needs to be a topic that we're very comfortable with teaching the next generation, especially when you're talking about successful leaders, entrepreneurs, and C-suite executives. You have a great knowledge. You don't want to just pass on money to your kids. You want to pass on the values and the financial principles that have gotten you where you are today. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's interesting that you say that and like this negative stigma that money carries with it. And I think oftentimes people go back to like the Bible and they say, look, money's the root of all evil. And it's like, well, if you read carefully, you know, it's talking about the love of money and there's, there's a difference there. And Huge uh, distinction. so, and, and I think, it, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I think people can, you know, I'm a religious guy. So I, I think you could get caught up in that and, and think to yourself, man, you know, like, money is kind of bad. If I pursue money or if I have a bunch of money, um, maybe I'm pursuing worldly things and I'm focused more on temporal stuff than like, you know, the things that matter the most. And, and I think you can have both, right. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it, you have to be walking around eating beans out of a, a can and wearing rags to say, Hey, look, I'm, I'm this humble person. I don't chase money. And I, I really yes. care about the meaningful things in life. I mean, what's your take on that? And that's, that's a real issue uh, because people do feel a little bit of shame in the, in the aspirational wealth pursuit. And that's why chapter seven in this next book, Smart Not Spoiled, is called Teach Your Kids to Give Generously. And I share some of the ideas and principles from my clients and friends and my own family. But one thing we've always done is uh, we, we like to travel a lot and we travel the faraway places with our kids, give them that world experience. But we always have a service day as part of our vacations. And so I share the story of one trip um, in the Caribbean somewhere where we took a, a taxi to a faraway place for an orphanage visit for our service day on that trip. And the taxi driver was super confused why an American family on vacation would go so far out of their way and spend a lot of time and money to do this kind of activity during a tropical vacation. But we spent hours there. My kids built relationships, read to the kids that stayed in the orphanage. And on the last day of the trip, four or five days after that, my wife and I asked the kids what they wanted to do for the last day. And they wanted to go back to the orphanage and see their friends and spend time with them. And so I think that we can change that negative stigma where in the Disney movies, the rich guy is always the bad guy. And we can turn that around and say, you can do so much good. You talk about that millennial who is cause and mission driven. Teach your kids to be smart, not spoiled by teaching them to give generously, not just writing checks to charities, sure. but actually involving them in the time and service process. I have one client who has their kids each year sit in on a family meeting and have different local charities from the community come present what their charity does. And then the kids decide together what charity they're going to donate money to as a family and what they're going to get involved with for the next year. So there are a lot of ways that we can actually teach a healthy relationship with money if we will just be intentional about it. No, I agree. Absolutely. And I, I think that's such a great point. And I love how you do that with your kids. I had a guest on, um, her name's Jessica Jackley, and she 
um, has a company called Altruist. And basically what it is, is it's a subscription-based service and you get a box in the mail and um, each box contains a, a certain theme. So we got our first box uh, just recently, a few weeks ago, and it was about homelessness. And so we opened up the box and as uh, as a home evening activity with the kids, um, we read through these little pamphlets is about um, homelessness. It talked more about it to educate um, all of us on what it is, what it's about, like what it, what it truly means and like how the circumstances actually arise in most cases. And it's really enlightening. And then there's an opportunity to build these little houses. There's these like tiny little cinder blocks that we glued together and we made a house and we talked about, Hey, look. A lot of people in this world, they don't live in a stick frame home with insulation and heating and air conditioning and all these, you know, things, you know, some people and a lot of people live in, you know, mud huts or cinder block homes and, um, you know, just, just educating them on like what else is out there. Um, was a really, really great experience. And yeah, if you, if you haven't checked out Altruist, I'd highly recommend that, but um, it was such a great activity to do with the kids. And I love what you're doing with your kids as well, because it's not about just stroking a check and putting in the mail and sending it off to some charity, but it's also um, about like getting out there and like teaching um, people the value of service and money along with that, like gives you that freedom to do that. Right. I mean, you can't go help somebody if you don't have anything to give. Yeah. It's like the, uh, the oxygen mask in the airplane, the flight attendant says you got to put your own mask on first before you can help someone else. So that's, that's a great reason to inspire the next generation to be successful is to say, look, you can help whatever cause you really care about, but first you need to get your own financial life in order and have that stable foundation before you can then start impacting the world around you. Yeah, absolutely agree. And what's interesting, another thought that I had when you were talking is now, I was reading in this book recently and it's talking about how we all set these like um, these upper limits on ourselves. So whether that upper limit is our, our happiness level or our financial level or our success level or whatever it is, our love limits, we all have these like these um, hypothetical upper limits. And what it was talking about in the book is that when we start reaching these upper limits, okay, wh- whatever our standards are, okay, wherever our mindset is, um, when we start exceeding that, then we start thinking, wow, like maybe I'm not worth it. I'm kind of in this like awkward zone, this I'm out of my comfort zone. And, um, and then we start sabotaging ourselves to bring us back down to that upper limit or below. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, I've talked with business leaders or entrepreneurs who, you know, maybe came from a very humble background. They didn't have a lot of money. They start, you know, reaching financial success and they almost get like, out of their comfort zone. They're like, wow, I don't know if I deserve this. Like when's, you know, when's the ball or the shoe going to drop and like, I'm going to lose it all. And they have like this paranoia because they, they haven't shifted their, their upper limit. Does that make sense? And they, to, to tell themselves, Hey, look, I do deserve this. Right. And then moving that upper limit up instead, they, they get past this. And sometimes they, they self-sabotage to bring themselves back down. What do you think about that? I think it's absolutely true. What, by the way, what book is that? I've read that book before. I can't remember what that is. The book that I read it out, it's like 101 essays that will change the way you think. It's, it's a really okay. good book. And there's there's a bunch of short essays that I, I read like each day. So yeah, that concept was taught in a, in a different book I read, but it's true. I think we all have that. We kind of expect to be where at a certain level. And I think in many cases, we expect to be where our parents were. And in many cases, that's that is the upper limit that people set on themselves is 
well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have be or do more than my parents ha had, you know, basically that's what I should be because I look up to my parents and they raised me and they gave me so much, but really, I think if you have a mission driven purpose and you've got goals that are significantly higher then you can reach those goals. And the more financial discipline you put around that, that plan and that strategy, the higher likelihood of success you'll have. I've seen, you know, we have one client who emigrated from the UK. He was a salesman. He was making $56,000 a year. Um, he, he got his work visa here. His employer laid him off and his wife was sick and eight months pregnant. And he was a sales rep for this machine company. And I remember him saying, I've got less than $2,000 in the bank. My boss just fired me unexpectedly. And his boss, for some personal vendetta reason, called essentially the U.S. Um, immigration over here and tried to get him sent home and said, hey, this guy's been fired for three months. He needs to be sent home. He shouldn't be able to do a work visa over there. And his wife was sick and couldn't travel. And he was desperate. And I remember he said, the only thing I've ever done is sold these machines. And he was making, like I said, 55000 a year. He decided out of desperation to start his own company and do the same work that he'd been doing, selling those machines to companies in the U.S. Not only did he succeed, he, he probably earns more in a week, easily more in a week than he did in an entire year. Um, he's built a 300 acre farm out in Kentucky. He's got racehorses that he always dreamed about as a kid. His parents now come from England and visit him and stay on the ranch. His vision for his future was completely changed and expanded once he got backed into a corner and had no other choice. And I think a lot of entrepreneur success stories come from people who have essentially cut the umbilical cord or they've jumped off the diving board. They've said, I'm going for it. They burned the boats and they had that moment where they had to succeed. They had no other option. And so those limits that we place on ourselves often from childhood upbringing can completely be broken if we will just open up our vision of what's possible. And I, I love to see my clients succeeding in such a big way like this particular client, because he can do and, he can do so many things and provide experiences for so many people in his family and friends. And he's a very charitable guy as well. Those would never have been possible if he kept that little mindset in his small town in Northern, you know, Northern UK. So it's pretty awesome to see that. And, and that's such an incredible story. And, it, and that theme keeps popping up over and over and over again in these conversations that I'm having um, with friends and colleagues and other business leaders and entrepreneurs. And it's exactly that. Like, I believe that we're all here to like progress in life. Like we're meant to make progress. And, you know, people talk about change. They say, hey, you know, I, everything's good. I don't want to change. Like, I just want to keep things the same right now. Or they say, I just don't have the energy to change or the time to change. And I say, look, you don't have to do anything and things are going to change. Like people around you are changing the economic environment, the political environment, the social environment, all, all this stuff is changing. You don't have to do anything. Just sit back and life's going to change. But to progress, it, it, it requires us to be proactive and to have that mindset. And it's interesting. Sometimes, you know, we think about something over and over and over again, like, ah, how's this going to work? I don't know if I could do it, you know, or it's like, Hey, should I start this business or whatever the, whatever it is. 
But really, I think as human beings, we have a tremendous amount of resiliency and fortitude built in us. And I think when we're pushed against that wall, right, where it's like, look, you know, you just lost your job. You're going to lose your house or, hey, you're down to your last $5 in your, your account, you know, and, and people really push. Um, I think amazing things happen because we just figure it out. Like, um, you know, most people I think are very resourceful and resilient. I, I believe that's a great thing to teach our kids that they're only limited by the beliefs that they set upon themselves, the limitations they give themselves. And often we will pigeonhole kids into thinking that they should follow the same career track that we did. So if mom was a lawyer and dad was a dentist, then you should try to become a lawyer or dentist because that's a great path that has served our family well. When really they should be expanding their own vision and their own imagination for the opportunities they see for themselves. They're different people. They're not the same as you and I, Um, our kids are different. And so I love seeing the kind of that blossoming success as people realize that the opportunities are limitless. Yeah, I agree. So let let me bring up one other scenario here before we wrap up. Um, And I I brought this up on in in other interviews, but it's, it's kind of troubling or, or it's something that kind of made me stop and really think about my whole philosophy on money, retirement, and everything else. So there's a, a couple that um, we're close with, they're really close friends with us. And, you know, they had this idea of like, Hey, look, we're going to get married. We're going to, you know, save every single dollar that we can. We're going to really scrimp and save. And, you know, maybe we're going to forego going out on dates or going out to dinner, or engaging in other types of entertainment because we want to pay off our house. And when we do that, when we pay off our house, then we're going to go travel. And that's what they ended up doing. You know, the big part of their marriage was about sacrifice, which I think is good, right? In, in some ways. Um, but they did it almost to like their detriment. And they they saved every dollar and they um they're very frugal and they paid off their house. And when they paid off their house, unfortunately, um, his wife passed away. So like their whole plans of like saving, you know, for some future date. Like we talked about that instant gratification, like delaying that gratification for this future date when then they could go out and travel, you know, when they paid off their house, they're in their sixties. So they did that. And then he loses his partner. And then it's like, dang, you know, all those years we could have been doing stuff together. We didn't. And I think it was really hard on him and I'm sure he had some regrets, but what are your thoughts? And like, how do you balance between, you know, like you should live in the moment, right. And enjoy because I mean, you can save all this money and you can, you can lose it all. Right. Or who knows what the future holds for us, but you also don't want to be frivolous and, you know, go out there and just spend a ton of money and, and have all this debt or have no savings. And then, you know, you run into financial trouble. So what's your advice and in, in how should people look at this balance between instant gratification and um, financial freedom? That's a great question. And it's a common scenario. It's not the first time I've seen or heard a story where People were delaying enjoyment in life and then a drastic change happened, which they could no longer go back in time and and recoup those opportunities. And so the advice has to be carefully given because there are those who just spend into oblivion because you're only going to live once and this is your time and you never know what's going to happen. And so they literally are borrowing and spending out of control, you know, racking up credit card debt and living the high life when they haven't really put in the work. So It's somewhere in the middle. I believe the only way to make that balance a reality is to have a personal financial strategic plan. All these executives that are listening to your show probably would never start a new year without a business plan. 
and yet most of them start a new year without a personal financial plan. And if you've got a personal financial family strategic plan, you know your priorities. So maybe the priorities are, we are gonna go on three trips a year and create memorable experiences for our family legacy. And you've got that earmarked, you've got a dollar amount set aside for that. Then you can be a little more disciplined in the other areas of saving. So you might not forego the trips and the experiences that you really want to have as a family, but you might forego buying the new boat since you've had a boat for only two years and you don't really need a new boat, right? So I think the only way to make that a reality and stay down the straight path is to have some planning in your personal financial life, just as you would in a business. I mean, there's, there's no way around it. You can't spend it all as if it, you're going to be gone tomorrow, because if you're not, you're in trouble. At the same time, living like a miser and saying, we're not going to enjoy life until XYZ happens means it's never going to happen because it's a constant mirage that you're looking for this next, anticipating this next achievement. And you're just going to give yourself another benchmark to where you're never allowing yourself to enjoy your own money. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and I love that. And I think that's so smart because I mean, as financial leaders, as strategic leaders, business leaders, you know, yeah, we, we have strategic plans. We have a strategy in place for our organizations and, you know, we build financial forecasts. We have all these tools, right. That we know are best practices within our companies, but when it comes to our personal lives, like a lot of those things don't translate over. and, And I think it could get us in real trouble. So I think that's great advice, Chad. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts, especially the the idea around kids. I think you know, teaching kids about financial management is so so critical. So I'm excited for your book to come out. So everybody, check that out. Remember, it's called Smart Not Spoiled. And Chad, thank you once again for your time today and uh, for all the good things that you're doing out there in the world. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.